Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Okay, folks, in this podcast, I'm having Mike Bridger back on the podcast. Now, he he hung out with us last year. We talked about sheep in preparation for our big sheep expedition hunt that we had last year. And, uh, and he's back on the podcast joining us as part of our wildlife management uh, series and talking to the wildlife biologist here in BC. And so we're super lucky to have Mike on because Mike's a hunter and, uh, and he's super passionate hunter and he's also been working on some some doing some really interesting work as a wildlife biologist here at bc he works in region seven so that's sort of the northeast corner of the province which is home to you know mo- pretty much every wildlife species uh or at least huntable wildlife species here in bc and uh yeah so to have him on so we we're, we're also buddies outside of work so we get a chance to to connect on the podcast and that should be lots of fun um specifically we're going to be talking to 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 mike about elk and, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about elk management and a little bit more about the species to, to help you on your journey as uh, if you choose to hunt elk here in BC and, and some learnings along the way. All right. Now, before we get started, just want to give a shout out to our sponsor. It's West Coast Kitchen. Now they do backpack food. Uh, so it's freeze dried food that um, you can take with you on extended backcountry trips and of course rehydrate it with water. Um, they do an amazing job of putting whole food into a bag. They freeze dry it and, um, it turns out pretty darn good. So if you want to check them out, go to their website, Google West Coast Kitchen Canada and put your order in. And then the discount code is eat wild and you'll get 10% on their, on their food. So check them out. All right. Let's get started. Hey, Mike, welcome back to the Eat Wild Podcast. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here. Cool, cool. Yeah, well, this is, um, yeah, we did, we did, we, we chatted, I know, probably this time last year, we were getting ramped up, uh, uh, Selena and I and Jenny to go on our, on our sheep hunt. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, we got kind of excited about talking about sheep and sheep dynamics and such. So, so thanks for sharing that. But we've got you back on here as, uh, as part of our, uh, biologist series with uh and talking about resource management and specifically talking about some species so i so i've asked you back on here to come and hang out with me and talk about it uh specifically around uh, rocky mountain elk populations and uh but before we get started i just want to acknowledge that i'm on the traditional territory of the seashell people on the sunshine coast it's uh i've uh i'm in my in the secret cove cottage today recording this session so it might sound a little different for other listeners and uh, i'll pass it over to you mike for an acknowledgement yeah, nice. Thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, up in Fort St. John, so I'm up in Treaty 8 territory and on the traditional territory specifically of the Blue uh, Blueberry River First Nations and the Doig River First Nations. Cool. Cool. Okay, well, so Mike, um, we know each other pretty pretty well now. I, I kind of pester you and bug you about all kinds of fun conversations, and we've done a couple of webinars together now, and, and, uh, and we've uh, been able to share some of your, your hunting knowledge with folks. But today, we're, I'm, I'm having you on to specifically talk about your profession as a biologist. Can you tell us a little bit about your 
uh, professional background as a biologist, how you've been doing, how, how long you've been doing it, what types of species have you been, been working on and, uh, just a bit of background. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I've been working as a provincial wildlife biologist, so working for the provincial government for just over six years now. Um, kind of came out of university with some wildlife biology degrees and, uh, came up here to Fort St. John and started working, practicing in the wildlife biology world and sort of started as, I guess, sort of a generalist in terms of the wildlife. I've dabbled in managing a bunch of different species up here, moose, elk, deer, sheep, goats, a little bit of everything. And uh, more recently, I'd say I've sort of um, focused more on the caribou recovery side of things. I actually right now work for the caribou recovery program in BC. So um, my focus is on sort of the predator-prey dynamics and how that relates to caribou recovery and some of the initiatives we're working on to, to try to get these caribou populations back on track. Um, but I, I mean, I have a lot of interest in, you know, all of our big game species uh, in, in the province and up here in the northeast region. Um, we're pretty spoiled up here with the, the diversity and abundance of, of the wildlife here. So I'm pr- I really feel fortunate to get to work in this region. Yeah, I think we, I think we kind of talked about that in the previous time you're on the podcast. You kind of have the, like, of the, of a biologist in the world, like, sort of maybe being a wildlife biologist in the Serengeti, like, you kind of have arguably the coolest biology job for big game management in, in that, and certainly in the world. So, um, yeah, you get the good fortune of managing all, all the big game species that are sort of prized within the hunting community, but also, um, yeah, definitely the, the dynamics that occur between the species and stuff and, are, are super interesting. I think we'll get a chance to talk about that as we talk about elk and the, and the value of, you know, and how they impact other species around them with their population dynamics. So that's super cool. I, I have, I have a question for you. So as a wildlife biologist, what is your, like, if you think about your favorite day as a wildlife bio, what, what comes to mind? Uh, well, I mean, there's lots of days spent behind the computer. So, you know, those ones don't usually pop up as being the, the top favorites. I mean, most of our sort of memorable days are out there working in the field, um, doing sort of the hands-on wildlife research and wildlife management. And um, I'd say, over you know, over the last five years, I, I've developed quite a bit of interest and passion in sort of the wildlife capture side of things that's some of our more sort of dynamic exciting work you know net gun captures of these big mammal species that we work with whether it's caribou or wolves or sheep or mountain goats um so yeah most of my best days are are usually uh out there flying and hanging out the side of the helicopter I, i remember one pretty pivotal day in my like you know, my fairly young capture career here. And, and I got invited to go over to Smithers to help um, some of my colleagues there with some mountain goat capture. And that was the first time I had the opportunity to do net gun captures of mountain goats. And I got over to Smithers and had to sit in the office for about two days while it absolutely puked snow outside. We weren't able to fly at all. And then on the third day, the, the skies open. I was just perfect bluebird conditions winter conditions and there was about like 18 inches of fresh snow out there and uh, we got into the mountains and um, yeah caught a whole bunch of mountain goats that day and just spectacular country rugged country we're working in really technical capture and uh, but everything was really successful and just uh, one of those days that will always sort of be a, a top one in my memories for sure 
That sounds spectacular that you set the scene well too with the, the fresh snow and yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Hey, hey, so, so see, are you, are you on the net gun? Are you, are you the trigger man? Yeah. Yeah. I have been, you know, I kind of started off learning as a handler, you know, being sort of the extra person in the helicopter and get a feel for how that whole process goes. And um, yeah. And then I've been, yeah, doing the net gunning for the last four or five years and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's high intensity. Some days are, are tough, you know, when it's minus 30 and you're, you're trying to do that work, but uh, it's exciting and it keeps you, keeps you on your toes. That's for sure. So, so I asked this question to your co- your colleague Conrad Thiessen. Uh, how often do you miss with the with the net gun? Never, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely, um, definitely, we miss some shots. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah, they are the crafty animals, and yeah, the shooting doesn't always go as planned. But more often than not, they end up in the net one way or another. Yeah, yeah, we learned a little bit about that in the last podcast. We learned about streamers. And, oh yeah, uh, like, yeah, get <laughs> yeah. Her. and then uh, yeah, and then also about reloading. You can you can re- there's yep. a kind of almost like a, a a rotary clip almost for the for the for the for the firearms to like reload the next gun. So that was yep. pretty fun to learn about that. Well, that sounds like yeah, the, the equipment's progressed for sure. So nowadays it's a little easier on us to to have our quick follow up shots and uh, yeah, things go generally go pretty smoothly out there. Yeah, well, when I when I look you up and you know, because we we share government employee, both government employees, so we we have a, a a network that we can see if we're in the office or out of the office. And I uh, every once in a while, if I'm going to check in on you for for work reasons or to say hello, I I see that you're uh, you're out of you're out of, out of office is on, and I'm like I just and I have this image that pops into my head that you're leaning out of a helicopter with a net gun flying over top of like goats on a beautiful snowy day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, in but, the winter there's a good chance, but uh, yeah, this time of year I'm, I'm pretty uh, office bound, unfortunately. I was going to say more often than not, that I see that you're in the office. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in a meeting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's kind of the rea- the other side of the reality of being a, a government wildlife biologist. You, you get plenty of desk time as well. Okay. All right. So I got another question for you. So as you, as you, we, we kind of know you're a hunter because you've been on the podcast before talking about your, uh, your, your passion around hunting. Um, so one question for you, what is, what is your favorite species to hunt and what is your favorite species to manage as a biologist? And are they the same thing? Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd probably say, and I think it's topical for today and probably elk, I think is my favorite species to hunt. Um, yeah, I love interacting with elk. Uh, I find that really hard to beat. I love, you know, the mountain hunts, the adventure that comes along on a, with a stone sheep hunt, for example. But uh, if I could only pick one, it'd probably be elk. And then management-wise, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, they all have their their different um, challenges. Uh, right now, like I mentioned, I am pretty entrenched in the caribou recovery, and um, I'm I'm really fascinated with the, like I say, the predator prey dynamics, and I've really enjoyed working on wolves uh, the last several years. Uh, quite passionate about uh, working on, you know, the wolf management, and they're just an extremely smart species. And all that's one species I always get excited to see, you know, when I'm when I'm flying around. So, um, yeah, wolves would probably be pretty high on my list of favorite for management at the moment. Yeah, well, I just it's it's kind of amazing how how little we know about wolves and, 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 and oh, I guess we are all learning right now a lot more about wolves in order to try and, um, yeah, do a better job of, of managing them, I guess. And, um, 
is you're kind of at the forefront of that. But I don't want to dive too deep into wolves because, uh, for obvious reasons, because I think it brings it brings an element of, of complexity around uh, well, uh, wildlife management. But I, I do want to talk specifically about elk for for this um, for this podcast, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to. And it is coming into elk season for for most of us, so we're starting to think about it. I got a sheep trip between now and my elk hunt, but um, but probably by the time I post this up, it'll be I'll be fully getting fired up about elk season. And uh, I thought I would kind of walk through some of the basic things around the species with you and get your biologist uh, perspective on a little bit about their habitat and 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 behavioral characteristics, and then um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how we manage them from wildlife management perspective. So, so the first question I have for you is, uh, um, well, what are, what are like in, in British Columbia, we have, can you tell me about the distribution of elk in BC first off? Yeah, for sure. So we've, we've got elk pretty widely distributed in the province. So we've got two different subspecies of elk, um, the, the Roosevelt elk on the coast, which you're familiar with there, sort of in your backyard. Um, but most people would be familiar with the Rocky Mountain elk, and, and that's they're, you know found predominantly on the mainland of BC. Pretty, like I say, widely distributed right from the southernmost parts of the province, you know, the Kootenays, all the way up through to the Liard River, um, getting close to the Yukon border. So um, elk have been here a long time. I mean, they they were they've always been native to BC. Uh, if you go back probably as far as sort of the last big glacial period, they would have found refuge probably down in the Southern States. And then once the glacier sort of retreated, um, elk redistributed throughout the province and have been here ever since. Is your population expanding in BC, would you say? Well, as far as distribution goes, I think you can make a case that they are expanding for sure uh, you know there's they're very adaptable and they'll start popping up in places where they haven't been maybe in the recent decades and centuries so you know you're starting to see more elk in spots in the okanagan uh, in the caribou region in the skeena region so they seem to be uh, expanding their distribution a bit and and their abundance you know will always fluctuate a bit but generally right now elk abundance and you know, population size are doing fairly well in the province. Cool. So what are some drivers that help, uh, like that would help increase a population, say of elk? Like what are some of the population drivers? I guess that's the question I'm trying to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whether you consider a driver or a limiting factor, sort of the main limiting factor would be winter, winter severity uh, for elk. So in that winter severity can affect an elk population abundance. And there's also probably what's going to, ultimately affect how far elk are distributed you know snow depth you know, they're not going to survive very well in areas where they where, where they're competing with deep snow so um we have in areas where we have the mild winters or we have good winter range um, that's really crucial for elk population so where there's good winter range elk populations will do pretty well but there's a host of other factors i mean um you know there's there's always fluctuations in our predator populations and they can potentially limit elk um you know disease is something that we we haven't had issues with in our elk populations but something that could potentially be knocking on the door one day um but for the most part these you know these ungulate populations are generally limited by habitat winter severity and and you know summer forage and and potentially predators so, so what does good like winter habitat look like for an elk? 
Yeah, it'll it'll vary a little bit depending on the region, but for the most part, the elk are trying to, you know, they're moving from, say, their summer fall range, and they're going to move into winter range that has lower snow, um, so better snow interception or just lower snow levels in general. Um, they're looking for easy and accessible forage, you know, for the most part, that's going to be sort of grasses and sedges. Um, they are fairly adaptable. Um, foragers in the sense that they can browse on, you know, on plants like willows and, and things we would consider, you know, something that moose would generally eat. They're fairly adaptable that way. Um, so winter range, yeah, it's generally comes with some higher risk when they move to winter range. You know, generally they're risking a bit more um, uh, with higher predator levels when they move into those winter ranges. But uh, the trade-off there is, is better forage and, and low snow. Cool. So, so I get I kind of go into this place where we're, I, I kind of was curious about is the, is the, um, um, well, I'll just go back and maybe tell you. Uh, so, I'll go back to a bit of a, a story where a, co- a couple years ago, we flew into the headwaters of one of the main valleys coming out of the, uh, the Rocky Mountains in the north. And we, we were sheep hunting and we, we were able to climb up into the alpine and, Every time we kind of climbed up into this beautiful alpine basin country, which, you know, I could see sheep trails on the mountains and we climb up in there and we start poking around and all of a sudden we'd see elk bedded down at right at the, like right in sheep country, right in the, like the, the, the tops of the, where where the alpine turns into rock even. And there's elk just bedded down up there. And I was kind of fascinated because I was like, well, well A, where are the sheep? <laughs> but I didn't know elk lived up in these alpine environments. Yeah. And then the weird part was, is that not weird part? We actually we actually went back in the same zone and we uh, did a river trip on the lower end of the same river. And we passed through, and this was a month or so later in elk, during elk season, and we passed through all of this beautiful elk country while on the river and we couldn't find an elk anywhere and i was like well i know where the elk are they're sitting up in those mountains up there which is yeah. unfortunately 40 miles away now for us um and of course we couldn't we were on a sheep hunt and backpacking and obviously those elk are off limits and even out of season and now that we're back here for uh elk season those elk are somewhere between that high mountain country and they haven't come down to where what i would think is traditional elk country uh for september fifth or whatever i thought they would be there um right. can you can you provide some biologist perspective on what i'm observing there yeah i mean there's could be a bunch of different explanations and where you're talking about you sort of in the northern rockies here um yeah the elk do very well up high and they spend a lot of time sort of in the subalpine and almost alpine levels um there's forage up there you know a lot of that country you're talking about has been burned uh historically so the forage is high um, you know, depending on the temperatures and whatnot, they, it may be a good place to escape from bugs. Um, and potentially they'll stay up there um, until they're driven down by snow. So, you know, perhaps they would have made it to that sort of lower country come winter, but uh, they can be pretty comfortable up around treeline or above treeline, especially up in these northern Rockies. I mean, we see it all the time, um, flying all times of year, you'll see the elk right up there with the sheep. Um, living on the same summer range, living on the same winter range. Um, you know, you'd expect 
as the season goes on, you know, traditionally, and this kind of applies down to the Kootenays too, those elk will get pushed out of the backcountry as the snow starts to fall and they'll head for a traditional winter range somewhere lower down or somewhere with, you know, south facing slopes or west facing slopes. In the Kootenays, you think of the the classic case of all those elk coming out of the backcountry into the Rocky Mountain Trench, you know, into the big valleys where they spend the winter sort of um, all congregating in, in the valley bottoms. And then as winter retreats, the, the elk sort of head back into the mountains, kind of surfing the green wave, we call it, as as the vegetation greens up back in the mountains. And then they sort of, that draws them back into their summer range. Um, so, yeah, there's, I mean, there's certain things that can influence timing and locations of where those elk will be through different seasons. But that that's sort of what we expect. And But uh, interestingly, I've, I've heard sort of in the Kootenays now that there's a lot of elk that sort of have, have given up on that migratory way and just spend the year round down in the in the trench and what would usually be considered winter range so um and that can change for a number of different reasons do you think they're more susceptible to predation when they're like out in the alpine in the open country or when they're in their higher density areas say down lower in those winter range zones yeah, it, it's going to depend on what you've got there for predator densities and whatnot. Um, generally, they're probably going to be a bit more at risk in the winter for a few different reasons. Um, one, you know, the main one being that the snow, the snow depth can really um, have an effect on how well they can evade predators. I think for the most part in the summer range, they're sort of a bit more widely distributed, so they're a little harder for the predators to find and encounter. Um, they certainly do better on dry ground as far as evading predators like wolves and bears. So, um, yeah. And then of course in the winter, their, their body condition is not great. You've got a lot of bull elk that go into the winter in really poor shape after the rut. And, you know, anecdotally, um, when I spend the winters flying around tracking wolves, the most common kill that we find is mature bull elk. That seems to be, uh, the number one sort of target i guess if you will for wolves um is is picking on those those bull elk that are going into the winter in, in poor body condition after the rut yeah they just they just they just use up so much energy um yeah. rutting around and and going through that that process that uh they run out of reserves and can't survive exactly. a, can't survive a an attack from wolves that's that's interesting um we talked a little bit about some of the, you know, you talked about probably burns and how, how, do, how just give us a rundown on what, what the benefits are for burns, particularly for the elk species. For sure. Yeah. So burns are sort of a process that creates what we'd call sort of early cereal conditions. So early cereal forest conditions. And that's usually comes with a sort of a flush of new plant life. And whether that's depending on sort of the ecosystem that can be in the form of, lush grasses and sedges and forbs or you know um, deciduous growth these are all you know sort of the favorite forage species for elk so when you have fire um, on the landscape uh, generally at some point once the regrowth the vegetation regrowth starts uh, elk are going to benefit from that do you know how many years like would you like how many years into a burn does it start to like really benefit the elk population yeah, it'll vary a little bit depending on the site condition, right? But, um, you know, for the most part, what elk are looking for are sort of those new grasses. So in that sense, it can happen pretty quickly. Within a few years, a, a burn can be pretty productive for elk. 
for other species, you know, that want sort of more of the, like say the deciduous regrowth, um, it might, might prime up later. Like for a moose, uh, a burn might be prime in 10 to 20 years post, post burn. But for elk, yeah, it's pretty early on potentially. Yeah. The first few years even, eh? Yep. Yeah. I know that some, I know that like when I think about, I get excited about, well, I don't get excited. I mean, obviously this year is not the year to be, you know, talking about the benefits of, of burns. And so there's a lot of tragedies happening across BC right now. Um, but the, uh, certainly like mule deer, which are in a lot of trouble here in the southern part of BC, um, you know, do benefit from burns. But I, it's my understanding, like I, I sort of, in my mind, it's like a four to eight year window when it starts to really, you start to see the, the, the response from the mule deer population. Um, yeah, do, starting to use those burns or at least starting to see like, um, the, 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 the does with multiple fawns, um, and, and where they're starting to, starting to really build up their population as a result of the, the food values of those burns. And yeah, so. yeah, you see that really positive response and that, yeah, like I say, that will vary, you know, with a bunch of different things that fire intensity is one of those, you know, where historically a lot of these species would benefit from fires that aren't so intense, right? They sort of go through and clean up the, the ground level and promote some more forage, but maintain a lot of the, the standing timber. But nowadays, obviously you see, we have these fires that are just so intense um, that they actually are, you know, burning the forest right down and they're burning deep into the soil. And so the regrowth process it can be slow. Um, so in that sense, you know, it could be quite a while before you, you start to see the wildlife benefits of some of these really intense burns. Yeah, it seems, I, I, that's, that's interesting you say that because I, I know that up north, like in, in pockets of areas in, in the northern Rockies where, I, where I've hunted over the years, uh, there's almost like um, a prescribed burn project or there has been in the past. I think the, there has maybe, been, yep. Okay. And, and it's, it, it's, it looks like a fairly light burn. It's like a, uh, it looks like the burn goes through and then the next year it just lush grass everywhere and just kind of the brush has kind of been killed off and it, the, none of the big mature trees are affected and kind of a, is that, is that intentional? Or is that how it's supposed to work out? Yeah, that's exactly it. So yeah, for, you know, in the prescribed burning that's been done up here in the past and, you know, there's definitely interest in continuing that sort of program up here. It's really targeting. So there's those um, grasslands, you know, replenishing the, the, the grass forage on, on in, in both summer and winter range, um, largely for sheep, for stone sheep up here, but other species like elk um, will benefit from that. And that's often what draws them up into those high elevation areas that you've seen. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, cool. Okay. Um, I was thinking about a couple of other things. So, okay. Another question I wanted to ask you is how do we, so we got a little bit of an idea about, you know, where elk live and, and some of their dynamics and how they move around a little bit. Uh, how do you count elk? Yeah. Well, good question. Um, there's a few different ways you can do it. The main way that, you know, we as the province would be counting elk would be from a helicopter using some sort of, of, of survey methodology. Um, there's a few different methods that we can use that include some sort of statistical analysis to help you sort of uh, quantify, quantify the elk population and extrapolate an elk population over a large area. Um, but generally, it's going to have to be aerial based. I mean, that's the best way to get up and count as many elk as you can. It gives it, um, you know, us as biologists the opportunity to classify elk too. It 
as you know, calves or um, different stages of bull uh, maturity. And those those are important parameters for us uh, to get a sense of how that elk population is doing. But yeah, it's going to be uh, an aerial aerial based survey for sure. So flying around and counting. Now there must be places that you can't necessarily fly around uh, and, and necessarily see them if they're living in forested areas. Um, yeah. Do we, uh, like there, how much do we rely on like uh, hunter information or other data to just track the, the hunter success rate or the population relationship to the population? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Quickly, I mean, we do have ways while surveying from the air to account for those elk that we can't see, say, like in the timber and whatnot. This things like called sightability correction factor, factors that allow us to correct for those. So we do, we, you know, we do get elk estimates that do account for elk that we didn't see from the air, for example. But yeah, to your point around uh, other sources of information, I mean, the, the harvest statistics that we receive um, through various forms, whether that be uh, uh, compulsory reporting or compulsory inspection or through the hunter uh, survey questionnaire that gets sent out to licensed hunters across the province. All that information tells a story, and we use that to supplement some of the, the aerial inventory data that we get. Um, but yeah, just like you said, you know, we can look at things like hunter effort over time. Um, we can look at uh, ages in the harvest, those kind of things, they all tell a bit of a story and those are really helpful to us, especially if we're lacking in the, the aerial inventory data, which often we are just because there's so much country to, to try to survey and only so much time and so much money. A lot of time we really do rely on those other sources of data. Well, the other thing I was thinking about, like, like elk are kind of, I mean, in general, and we kind of talked about this before we got on the air here, like the elk population is kind of one of the success stories could you say would you call it a success story in terms of the sustainability of the population here in the last 20 years like from a wildlife management perspective i would say so i mean one of the greatest success stories of wildlife management in our province is is the roosevelt elk work that's been done by uh, some of my colleagues there on the on the island in the sunshine coast and you're probably well aware of some of that work um translocating Roosevelt elk on, into the, the mainland has been a huge success. And then, you know, elk on the mainland, the Rocky Mountain elk, um, they've done well. And I, you know, whether that's through things that we've done management wise, hopefully a little bit, but for the most part, I mean, they're doing well just because they are such an adaptable species. Um, they are a species that could potentially benefit from climate change, you know, in some of these northern latitudes. Uh, they have the potential to expand northward quite well. And uh, like I say, if, if they've got conditions where there's decent forage and the winter um, severity isn't too bad, they'll, they'll do really well. So, yeah, right now there are species we don't really have many, um, say, conservation concerns for. The populations are always going to fluctuate and you know you say right now maybe in the east kootenays it's not what it once was but and that's probably a result of a few severe winters recently but um elk are quite resilient and expect them to, to bounce back how do they do in response to, to like to logging do they benefit from from clear cuts and such yeah potentially to a degree right um a clear cut similar to a fire in a sense that it, it's opening up the canopy and it's going to create some new early cereal growth that could potentially benefit elk as uh, you know as far as forage goes but everything has to be in moderation you know um, if you get 
carried away with the clear-cut logging and you start removing too much of that mature forest cover, um, that doesn't necessarily benefit elk. Uh, they still need they still need mature forest cover for you know for snow interception and thermal cover and to evade predators and so it's got to be uh, it's got to be within moderate moderation for sure. Yeah, there was another thing I was you know we we sort of touched on a little bit and it's you know there's where the populations are are doing well like the successful populations of elk say up up north say after a big burn response it, there is only so much food or habitat to go around i, I imagine like I, I, there must be other species that that uh aren't doing as well while the elk population is doing well could can you lend some light onto that yeah sure that can happen for a few different reasons so you can have sort of a direct competition effect where you've got a species say like elk and maybe something like sheep so both species that are predominantly grazing grazing for the same sort of forage species like you know grasses and sedges and forbs uh, they can potentially direct compete uh, sorry uh, compete directly for that resource and um, you know elk are, are big they're potentially sort of aggressive, you know, when it comes to competing for resources. So they can displace a species like sheep um, when competing for forage. Another, another um, potential implication of that is that elk in, you know, in, in high abundance, they bring predators with them. Uh, and that's certainly the case up here in northern BC is where you have these, um, these elk populations. Um, you're going to have substantial wolf populations there. And, and in, in this region, elk um, through the mountains are a relatively new thing. Um, we didn't have many of them up in the northern Rockies until we got really aggressive with the, the prescribed burning, say back in the 60s and 70s. The elk populations exploded, and, and around that time, we saw pretty substantial declines in our stone sheep populations and our caribou population. And that's likely because those elk um, brought in a much higher density of, of predators than we would have had historically. So is that, I mean, has that sort of impacted the willingness to continue with prescribed burning programs in, in looking back at this now as to how it's affected those, those populations of, of uh, caribou and sheep? Yeah, for sure. It's part of the conver uh, conversation, right? We've got to be super careful around the potential side effects of enhancing elk habitat for example and, and what that can mean for other species that are close by so there's sort of winners and losers as there's popular as as habitat changes over time oh for sure yeah i mean it's all so complex and there can be a, a million different outcomes to sort of the ways that we manipulate the landscape out there well as it as a you know as an avid elk hunter you know i I was part of the community that was like, why don't we continue burning? This is great. There's like, let's get more habitat. Let's get more elk. That's good. And it didn't, you know, I, I didn't have the love. I didn't have the understanding of the, you know, that there are impacts beyond just having more elk, but of course it brings in predators and, and they of course compete for winter range with the sheep and, and uh, with the burns, you take away some of those key areas that are important to caribou and such. So, yeah, yeah that's potentially, but uh, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, it ha burning has its applications, and, and it could be a great tool for for elk habitat enhancement um, under the right circumstances. So, yeah, definitely not writing a prescribed fire off. It, it's it, potentially one of the best tools we have for for enhancing elk habitat as well as some other ungulate species habitat. 
Yeah, I guess I was just, it's just not as simple as I originally thought. I was like, this is so easy. Let's just start lighting fires. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of the way of the past, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah, things have changed a little bit since the days of the Wild West when we just lit up mountainsides without really thinking of the Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of a lot of things that we did in, in wildlife management that we probably, you know, have to be a little bit different approach these days. Yeah, um, exactly. I was thinking about that. Uh, I, I, I had a, here, I mean, just uh, actually, part-time I've moved back to the Sunshine Coast here. I've got, I've owned a home up here for many years and, and one of the suites came up. So I, uh, Mickey and I have taken advantage of that and, and moved back up here for just as it get, get out of the city for, and now that we can work from home a little bit, it's been kind of a cool adventure. So I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to hunt here again. And, uh, but you know, what was interesting is when I, 10 years ago when I was, well, I was probably more like 17 years ago when I first moved here, it was right when the, um, Daryl Reynolds and his team were doing the uh, elk relocation um, right. program and uh, huge successful program. I'm actually looking forward to having Daryl on the podcast to talk specifically about Roosevelt elk and that program. Um, but it was interesting because you know where I am here in Secret Cove on the Sunshine Coast, it's it's it's, class, it's known as some of the best blacktail habitat in the uh on the sunshine coast and of course i'm a pretty dedicated hunter and uh i would uh go out in the evenings and in the mornings before work sometimes and go sneak around in what i thought was looking pretty good looking deer habitat and i i in seven years of trying to kill or hunt a black i was never they never killed a buck and i actually never even came close to getting a, a, a black-tailed buck here on the coast now what i think one of the what i you know what I thought the implication was, I think, is because there was a real growth in the elk population. And, and because right behind my house, there's a giant herd of elk that I think they just dominated that, you know, th- those areas behind the place that were the best forage, which then pushed the blacktails into other places or maybe had a significant impact on that blacktail population. There was also the wolf population, which was never here, but came in with those elk as well. And I suspect that black-tailed deer were much more susceptible to those wolves that were in the area as well. So I think they had a bit of a double whammy um, back 15 years ago for their population. So Yeah. So this yeah, I think your hypothesis there is probably, I think you, you had a pretty good story to tell there. I'm sure it has something to do with that sort of what I was describing, wrote some like direct competition effects and also this uh, effect of, of bringing in a predator that... Um, can can affect not only the elk but the other species that were there originally so what was sort of interesting and this is again totally anecdotal like i've so mickey and i have been hunting bear out behind the house and and just generally walking the dog and going up and shooting up in the hills and every time we go out we see black-tailed deer and i'm like this is weird like this it almost seems like this black-tailed deer here which i would swear to you there is no black-tailed deer in here after seven years of failed hunting effort. I, I, I would, I'm not afraid to tell people, I'm like, oh yeah, like I hunt behind my house. That's totally useless. Like don't even bother because there's no deer here. Um, I'm not worried about like giving away a secret spot, but I am, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm like, well, this is interesting. Is this, is this like the population that ha- has it bounced back notably have these sort of like population drivers, whether it's wolves or competition, do they, have they kind of leveled off? Um, and I'm curious and I, I'll get to talk to Daryl about that because he'll, he'll be the, the, the the guy that I'd be able to speak to that, but I think it kind of relates to some of those broader examples that you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and these things cycle, right? So maybe you caught a 
caught the blacktail at the, the low end of the cycle and there's a good chance they're going to start cycling back up. So hopefully that's what you're seeing there. You have some luck back there. Yeah, just, just like the prawn season here on the Sunshine Coast, it's it, it was a, just a, a knockout. Like the first year I moved here, like 17 years ago, like it was awesome prawn fishing. And then, and then after that, you, you put down eight traps and have a hard time catching enough for dinner. And then this year, come back up the Sunshine Coast, just a bananas year for prawn fishing. So Yeah, I, I even took advantage of that a few weeks ago when I was down that way uh, with some prawn traps out around Powell River. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, bananas. I don't know. It was, it was awesome. Like you just, you just you know, getting your limit of prawns pretty easily with a handful of traps and beautiful prawns. Anyways, this is, yeah, like, wildlife goes in cycles. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So we've kind of covered off a bunch of stuff here. I'm, I, we're doing great for time. Um, so where we've got these populations of elk that are doing well, we'll say, um, you know, what, what are some tools that we use to manage them, um, and, and ultimately create hunting opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a few places in the province where, you know, we've got some really high densities of elk, like the East Kootenays come to mind and the Peace region up in my neck of the woods come to mind. Uh, they do, uh, I sort of haven't mentioned it yet, but they do also quite well in these sort of agricultural interfaces, right? Where there's there's plenty of, of feed, available feed out in the farmer's field. So um, that that can also have a pretty positive effect on elk populations. Well, it's winter um, range, right? Like it's, yeah, it makes for a good winter range, definitely. Um, but as far as, yeah, management of elk goes, um, you know, again, I'd point back to the sort of the habitat being sort of the key driver for elk, um, providing that, the you know, the sort of the trade-offs between forage and, and security. Um, we've got a few tools, like say from the province's perspective, where we can help manage elk um, habitat and their populations. You know, I think of things like um, what we call government action regulations, which uh, include sort of land land designations like ungulate winter range and wildlife habitat areas. And when we designate areas under those designations, um, we have a bit more control of what goes on in there as far as industrial activity. We can implement um, specific forestry management practices, for example, that would benefit elk. Um, when it comes to, for us as wildlife managers, often we're limited to sort of um, how do I say this, regulating human access to the resource like elk. So a lot of the times our most available tools are things like hunting regulations or access management. Um, in the Kootenays, access management is is a big thing, a big deal, uh, for, and that has um, effects on elk. Um, you know, like a lot of the, the valleys that, that elk live in in the backcountry in, in the summer and fall, there's access management there where you can't use motorized vehicles, for example. So this is an um, area, say, that's been then logged out or has had logging activity. So there's existing roads and clear cuts and then... Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's one way to give the elk a bit of a reprieve from, from hunting pressure, potentially. Um, we've got some really liberal elk seasons in British Columbia, which is great if, if you're an elk hunter. And we're lucky that we have the elk populations... Um, where we can do that. And we've, we, we have some regulations in place that allow us to do that. You know, things like antler point restrictions, uh, which we can talk about in a bit more detail, um, allow us to hunt elk sort of continually, but sustainably by, by only making sort of a certain portion of the population available to harvest. 
Okay. So, so the one that I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hunted mostly in the Kootenays and, and in the Peace, and it's a six point antler restriction in the Kootenays where I started hunting. Um, and I, and that's, so that's, so tell, tell us about what the, what the concept is behind the six point using that as a tool to regulate the population. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's almost like a fail safe regulation for us in the sense that, um, the, the hunting's focused on sort of the mature bull portion of the population. And, um, you know, generally you can harvest quite a few mature bulls out of a population and not have an impact on how that population is going to function. You're, you're leaving lots of bulls, albeit they may be a bit younger, but you're leaving lots of bulls out on the landscape that are able to do the breeding, you know, to ensure that the, the cows are getting bred. So um, the six point season is nice in a sense that it allows us to have liberalized hunting seasons. Like I think we're one of the only jurisdictions in North America that has a, a rifle hunt th- throughout the peak rut uh, of, of the elk season. So um, that just limits the, the, the number of elk that are uh, susceptible to harvest um, by focusing it just on six points and ensures that there's going to be plenty of bulls out there to, continue the rutting activity and continue breeding cows. Um, in other places, we have even more liberalized uh, elk hunting regulations that you alluded to the Peace region. We have a, a three-point elk season up here in, in and around the agricultural areas. So that's sort of even lowering the bar even further, making more elk available to harvest. And, and we do that because in a lot of these agricultural areas, the elk can get to the you know, the population get to the point where we start having conflict with agricultural producers where the elk are, um, are being hard on the, on the crops and that leads to all sorts of conflicts. Um, and in some jurisdictions, including the peace, we even have open cow elk seasons to help us sort of regulate those elk populations to the point that they're not over, you know, they're overly abundant or over carrying capacity, for example. Yeah, that's uh, I know that, there's some interesting, you know, there's always a discussion around the six point season. Um, and, and I, I guess that I think it's generally accepted within the hunting community and, and probably welcomed in the hunting community because it does, it, it has the unique ability that, you know, everybody gets to go hunting if they want to go hunting. It's just that not that many elk get killed. So it kind of creates hunter opportunity while still sort of managing the population. Um, I also know that like, uh, we'll talk about LEH a little bit, but uh, I, I, I'm curious, and this may be too broad of a question, but I, I have heard the argument, well, because there's such low success rates, I mean, it's hard to kill a six-point bull elk in most parts of BCs, and, and even you know, really good elk hunters that are dedicated to hunting an area year over year aren't necessarily successful uh, consistently. And and so a lot of people, I've, I've heard the have advocated, well, what, you know, why are we on a six-point season? Could we go to a say a limited entry opportunity for any bull elk or a five point bull elk and then limit the hunting pressure and then increase the hunter success for those people that have a tag. Um, have you, have you been a part of those discussions or do you, do you have any thoughts yeah. about yeah, whether that's sure. better for the elk or is it, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough, right? It really comes down to sort of a hunter value sort of perspective, you know, it's a question of, do you want an opportunity to hunt elk every year and potentially have a lower likelihood of success? Or do you want to potentially 
wait three, four, five, ten years to maybe draw that tag finally and have a higher likelihood of success and maybe heart, you know, maybe shoot any bull. It doesn't have to be a six point necessarily under an LEH um, regulation. It's a, uh, it's a trade-off. I mean, um, it's not really for me to answer either way um, from sort of a biological perspective and conservation perspective, either, either approach can work fine. It's really just a matter of sort of finding what works best for the, the hunting community. Um, if, if you get into a sort of a condition or a population situation where the general open season appears to be leading to too high of, of hunting harvest or hunting pressure, then LEH is often a tool that will revert to, 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 closely regulate the harvest um but for the most part the you know i think the general open season most people in bc covet that opportunity um generally when we go to leh that's gonna take away that opportunity on an annual basis and that's that can be a tough pill to swallow for some yeah it's not it's not popular for sure i think that you know i think it's widely accepted that that you know hunting moose populations where we have just more hunters than we have moose available and and to some degree that, you know, uh, you just can't have a whole bunch of hunting pressure to successfully hunt moose. So I think the LEH works so well for, for our, at least the, the, el- the moose population in the lower half of BC. And, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I think there's some merit to, you know, I do like, I, I love having less pressure when I go hunt. I just don't really like competing with other people. Um, and and that's the reality of a general open season hunt. You have to be prepared to sort of strategize or work harder or just be better at hunting than the average person that, or another hunter that's there potentially competing with you, which does create a different dynamic. But there's something to be said for those unique LEH hunting opportunities. But I think we're very lucky to be have the, you know, we have such an incredible resource here in BC that we can, af- we can have all of the opportunities. There's going to be, leh opportunities for those special hunts that we all you know cherish those opportunities to go on and then there's still the you know a six point bull elk season and and you know being able to go and and, i mean we're all going four of us are going sheep hunting good friends and we're going sheep hunting over this over the counter tags and you know we most likely will not kill a sheep or even see illegal sheep but you know we're all we all get to go and yeah and that's the coolest part. And we get to go every year and we get to go every year and not kill sheep, which is just fine with me. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're super lucky here in BC to have those opportunities. And uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have our challenges with wildlife management and habitat management, but um, you know, compared to a lot of other jurisdictions, we're, uh, we're really fortunate to have the, the resources that we have here. No doubt. No doubt. So no doubt you get, okay. I, I imagine you get this phone call fairly often when someone finds you in the directory and says, gets you on the phone and says, Hey Mike, I'm a new elk hunter. Where should I go hunting? How do you respond or how, how, what, how, what, how can you respond to someone and, and provide them some guidance without giving away your secret spot or more importantly, my secret spot as to where to go <laughs> elk hunting. Um, yeah. and just do the generalities. How, how can we steer the listeners here towards, um, you know, potentially building the knowledge about an area so they can start to become successful elk hunters at some point down the road? Yeah, well, great question. I mean, the, nowadays there, there's a ton of tools available to us to sort of learn and, and scout for elk. Um, yeah, I definitely, you know, we welcome, uh, speak for all the regional biologists across the province, we welcome phone calls from from our stakeholders, the hunting groups, uh, individuals to talk to us about just that, you know, 
general questions around our wildlife populations and where we may find them and where we may not. And, you know, we're definitely happy to provide some advice on, um, on what may be available. So yeah, when it comes to elk, um, you know, to answer that question sort of broadly, I mean, we've got a few regions in the province where elk are very abundant and, you know, I'd sort of point to the, the East Kootenays and, and the Peace region as sort of the two top producers for elk. And uh, yeah, when I get that phone call, um, which happens quite commonly, I had one today, in fact, um, you know, it's it's sort of a just a general conversation around what type of hunt they're envisioning and, you know, are they backpack hunters or they stick into the roads and and then we would sort of narrow it down from there and just I would provide some advice on sort of just the general abundance and um, preferably those calls come to me they have some areas in mind and I can sort of give a, a yes or no as to whether that might be worth their time and um, yeah we just have sort of general general conversations yeah I don't put too many x's on maps necessarily but uh, definitely happy to provide as much advice as I can. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I do think, I mean, it's, there's another, like, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, you, you kind of look at the, the way, you know, the level of disturbance we're having on our land base across BC, and there's going to be winners and losers as far as the species that are out there as to if, if we continue to go down this road of resource extraction in BC. And I, and I think that we're, you know, I don't see an end to that. I think it's going to continue to happen. I just hope we can continue to get better at, at preventing the impacts to wildlife populations and such. But, um, but I think it's a good investment to be an elk hunter. I think that elk hunting is going to be, uh, like they, the elk population, despite some of the major landscape changes that we've seen, um, at least in my hunting lifetime, that the elk populations have, have, have done well. Um, similarly, like whitetails, I think are going to be, if you're a whitetail fanatic, you're probably going to have hunting opportunities. Um, but yeah. It, yeah. Um, but you know, obviously like other, other species are, are, are going to be, we're going to have to continue to be diligent about how we manage them, how we regulate them, mule deer, moose likely sheep, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, yeah. I think, it, yeah, you're spot on. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, if you're an elk and whitetail deer hunter in the province right now, things are looking pretty good. I mean, these are species that, like I say, that are, are very adaptable and, uh, definitely capable of expanding their distribution and, you know, they're, they're found in fairly high abundance and, the, they could very well um, thrive on, you know, with things like climate change as that sort of progresses throughout the province. So, um, yeah, you're, I think you're spot on there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't want to dive too far into, I mean, I'd love to, I mean, I'd love to talk to you about elk hunting and strategies and such, but I think we'll save that for either another podcast or maybe one of our, our, our learn to hunt webinars. I'll get you on there and we'll talk about, you know, our techniques and, and ideas around, uh, you know, um, hunting and calling elk. Um, but probably one that I, you know, I think is important for us to always discuss and, and, and certainly the biggest learning curve for me as a elk hunter was, was really coming, getting comfortable with, with counting points as a biologist and as an elk hunter, do you have any, um, tips for how a new hunter could approach counting points on elk? Yeah, no, that's a really good point to bring up. Um, it is, it, it can be really challenging, especially, you know, it depends on the sort of terrain that you're hunting in. I mean, I guess if I had to preach one thing, it's just patience. Um, things can happen really fast and things can get really intense when you're hunting elk, especially in the rut. 
um, the last thing you want to do is make a really re regrettable mistake out there. So um, I'd preach patience and, and just get really comfortable with, with looking at elk, whether that's on pictures or videos, um, or going and trying to find elk in the off season and just getting really comfortable with counting those points. There's a few little tips and tricks, you know, to getting a, a quick idea whether there's a, a good chance that bull is a six point, um, for example, and just really practicing that. And, and then when, when it comes time out in the bush, um, count a few times, you know, um, and just be really sure before you pull that trigger. But uh, it's a really important point that you bring up there. Mm -hmm. Probably the other one I was thinking about, and Conrad brought brought this up at the end of our uh, our, our, our caribou podcast, is the size of the animal. How big is a bull elk standing, you know, with the guts in and everything, like the, the live weight? Yeah, well, they're potentially an eight or 900-pound animal. So, yeah, they are, they're substantial in size, and, yeah, they are a lot to manage once you've got one on the ground. And uh, hunting in September can come with a variety of different types of weather, but often, you know, early in September, you still have some pretty hot weather, and you may have flies still so managing an elk once you get it on the ground uh, is something you really have to be cognizant of and be prepared um, how to break down an elk and pack it out if you need to how to get it out quickly so you can get it cooling and avoid it spoiling so um, you know a lot of us I think we get sort of ambitious in our elk hunting plans to, to hike way back into the back country and oh you're going to get into all these bulls back there but the reality is once you put one on the ground, uh, you've got a tremendous amount of work, you know, upwards of 400 pounds of just meat to get back. And uh, you really need to be prepared for that. Totally. It's, it's, it's without taking a cape out or anything. If it's for, for me, it's five killer loads for a, a, an average six point bull elk in the Rockies. And that's not including your gear, like you're going to have gear with you. If it's a, it's a backcountry camp, it's another two loads. If it's just your day kit, you and your partner, it's at least like, I don't know, I pack around 20 some odd pounds of stuff with my binox and spotting scope and rifle. So that's a full load when you add that times two. So it's six, six pack loads. So if you think you're going much beyond a couple of kilometers into the woods before you, you're, you're, you're really asking for a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's no joke. Yeah, you got to be prepared or have, have some good hunting partners or some, some <laughs> good hunting packers at least. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully have a team that kind of do it and whip out in one load, which is ideal. Um, and the other other reality too, and I think particularly for elk, if you're in the Kootenays or the Peace or even some parts of the Caribou Plateau now, it's like it's uh, grizzly bears are, are a factor. And, 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 you know, the faster you manage your meat and get it out, the, the definitely the less you have a chance of a grizzly bear stumbling on you yeah that's certainly a risk too the you know the long if it's a multi-day pack out every every day you're out there with that meat the the risk of a, of a bear finding it just increases significantly so yeah, yeah definitely I, something I wouldn't to be even, careful yeah i wouldn't even consider it i i i i, I just every every year i have more you know more i'm more wary of the risk associated with uh grizzly bears and and meat especially killing elk and and, and uh yeah i'm pretty i'm pretty i'm pretty focused on like a you know get an animal on the ground and get it out in four hours and have a plan to do that yeah yep yeah that's not a bad idea for sure uh, <laughs> unfortunately i you know i i get carried away sort of chasing bugles into the far distance the next thing you know you're you know you're several kilometers back and 
yeah, now you really got to get busy and, and get that elk out as fast as possible. But yeah, <laughs> but you you may have the luxury, and I I don't know exactly where you hunt, but I, I suspect you probably have a lot of a lot of buddies that are on call that you might be able to get there within I, a few hours. Well, I have a select few that I trust to uh, <laughs> to come into these elk spots, but yeah, no, I can't open the door for everyone. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's a, that's how I got to be a good whitetail hunter. I just I just packed a lot of deer out for one of my one of my mentors. And, yeah, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. just just to get. I bet you figure it out. You either you go back to the same spot, or you go. Okay, yeah, this this looks like good country. Okay, I get it now. And uh, or just about the yeah, sit on the same stump he sat on for the last you know forty years, and it seems to work out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Much. yeah hey, so I got a couple questions for you before you go. Yep. Um, I know that like you know I I know that the work you do is really challenging. I mean working working as a a wildlife biologist, it's, it it must feel like an uh, an uphill climb at times, given you know what we see in terms of landscape changes and and uh, the you know just this incredible resource that you're you are responsible for, or you've dedicated your career to managing, and I mean they're they're at risk in in, in some places, and it, that's no doubt difficult to uh, to come to work every day and have to work within that context. Um, but maybe you could share uh, something you're most proud of in in some of the work you're doing currently or in the, in, in, and uh, and share that story with us yeah sure well that's a really good question um i think you know i i'll give maybe i'll give two kind of answers i think like the sort of the cheesy answer that i'll give here is sort of the the relationship building that comes with this job um both sort of with the the colleagues of mine across the province, like I get to work in an awesome team, um, both within my region and and across the province, and develop some really great relationships and friendships with 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 some of my colleagues. And we have some some awesome wildlife biologists in this province. Um, but that extends um, the relationship building extends to you know some of the stakeholder groups I've got to know and some of the indigenous communities I've got to work with up here over the years. Um, sometimes these relationships are challenging and they have been challenging in previous years. And I see a lot of progression there um, with our, you know, the, the trust that we build with our, with our stakeholders up here and with some of the indigenous communities. So I do really, I do really like that. And I, I love the, the outreach um, portion of our job and just, just talking to people about wildlife management and seeing the different values that, you know, the different groups have in wildlife. It's not always just about, hunting and utilization. I mean, there's a ton of different values um, of wildlife out there. And I, I really enjoy sort of that, you know, the outreach aspects. Um, so that's kind of the corny answer. I think one of the, some of the work I'm doing right now that I'm most proud of, I mean, um, this caribou recovery uh, work that we're doing in the province is probably, I, I think it's safe to say, it's probably the greatest conservation challenge in North America right now is recovering these caribou populations. Uh, there's so many competing factors um, and it, it is a really wicked problem, a wicked challenge that we face. And what we're doing here in BC is is so tough, um, but we're, we're on the leading edge in a lot of the work we're doing when it comes to caribou recovery. And uh, I personally, I like sort of working on that leading edge and I, I like working sort of in the controversial realm of wildlife management and it doesn't get much more controversial than, than caribou recovery for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, you know, the, the, the predator management piece is, is something that we're also taking sort of a leading role in here in BC and um, something that I sort of pride myself in, in that 
in that work in the sense that it's a huge responsibility to to conduct predator management. Um, it's something that we take very seriously, um, something that we want to implement with high scientific rigor and defensibility. Uh, we take the humaneness part very seriously. And um, like I say, it's a huge responsibility. And I'm, I'm really proud of the steps that we've taken in BC and, and happy to sort of be a, on the leading edge of that work. Um, it definitely keeps, keeps us on our toes. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I I think what I'd like to do is come back to this in a in a separate podcast because the work that you're doing on caribou recovery, wolf management, and you know working with communities and working with First Nation communities in particular, it's fascinating work. And and uh, I've been kind of mindful, you know, with the series of podcasts that we're doing with it and getting the the opportunity to interview a series of wildlife biologists. I mean, you know. I, I'm trying to keep it between some goalposts here as far as right. sticking to an educational co- component and trying to navigate away from the, well, at least being respectful of, of what we've, what, what I've kind of proposed to, um, to the folks who sort of manage what we talk about in government. And, uh, but I'm hoping that by building some trust here that I can come back to some of these more, um, yeah, these more complex conversations that I think are so important that we find a way to tell the story of caribou recovery, you know, bring on some of the different voices who have been a part of it and see if we can tell it, tell that story and the good work that you're doing and, and ultimately the successes you're having. Cause I mean, you guys are doing an amazing job of bringing some populations of caribou back from the brink of extinction, which like you said, it's, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's some of the most groundbreaking work that's happening here in North America right now and, and they're having success. So, so yeah. Glad, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, it would, I mean, uh, it'd be great to have the opportunity to share some of these stories around caribou recovery a bit more, but yeah, maybe we can save that for another day. Yeah, totally. No, I, I, hope, I hope we get the support to do it. And I think this being, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to It'd be fun. Cool. Okay. I got a couple of easy ones for you just before I, yep. I kick you out the door here. Um, and, uh, so, so number one, can you tell me, uh, because this is an eat wild podcast. Can you tell me the most memorable backcountry meal you've had while on a hunt or an outdoor adventure? Backcountry meal. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah, I, I definitely get pretty sick of those freeze dried meals pretty fast. So it's definitely not one of those. I think um, it is really hard to beat fresh sheet meat on the mountain. Um, I I don't know if it's because the sheet meat's so good or you just, just, just because you've been starving for the last two weeks. But uh, when you finally get that chance to cook some backstrap with a little bit of seasoning over an open fire, Oh man, that's, that's as good as it gets. I think ribs too. Um, some sheep ribs over the open fire. Yeah. That's really tough to beat. That's, that's awesome. Making I, me hungry now. Well, I haven't had that experience in my, in my hunting life. So I'm one of these years we're going to stumble on a, a legal sheep and, and we're going to have that experience. So I, uh, I'll, uh, I, I can't wait to have that opportunity for sure. I, I, I think to- this is your year. Yeah, I don't. I I try to maintain low expectations because because uh, I just I mean honestly it's such an I mean part of it is I don't want to have any. Uh, I just want to like when I when I look at the sheep I'm going to kill I don't want to have any question around whether it's legal and whether it's too far away. Like I don't want to have I don't want to add any pressure to myself to make the decision in that moment. I, I just want to like I, I want a hundred percent certainty, which is a lot to ask in sheep hunting. I think in some ways like the. Just because it it is the 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 nature of sheep hunting requires long range shots, which I'm not a big proponent of, and uh, and also just there's there's always going to be a, some level of risk when you're do you do your very best to eye up a ram or count rings or make sure it's legal, and I I, I just 
I, I, the, yeah, if it all comes together for me, that's going to be a no doubter, um, in all aspects. And, and, uh, so I'm not adding any pressure to myself because I don't want to make that decision any more difficult as to whether it's a no doubter or not. Yeah. Well, that's a good approach, but I, uh, I'm sure you've put in your time and uh, I think the stars are going to align at some point here. Right on. Well, I appreciate the vote of confidence. Um, I do have a solution for you though, because because uh, we actually have a sponsor on the Eat Well podcast, and it's a uh, it's it's West Coast Kitchen, and they do backcountry food, and they do actual like real whole food, and they like dehydrate it or, or actually uh, uh, put it in the freeze dryer and uh, and then put it in bags. So it's actually super good quality food. So I will send you a bag of one of my favorite meals from West Coast Kitchen as a thank you for doing the podcast. Oh. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'll check them out. Yeah, check anything them out. to uh, to to sort of enhance the the eating experience out there on those backpack hunts would be much appreciated. Yeah, well, I think just kind of going with the whole food concept, it just it, I feel like it doesn't slow me down as bad as like if I was to go on ten days of mountain house, I would die because I I'm just so I eat pretty well generally, and I just my body doesn't respond super well to like lots of salt and sugar and stuff. So. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um. Cool. Okay. Last question before I let you go. What is your dream hunt that you want to do in the coming years here? Um, well, we were talking about elk quite a bit today. I think the dream is still to pull a coveted Roosevelt tag, LEH tag. I really want to experience that hunt at some point. I want to get in the, the coastal jungle and, and chase those big, those big elk around. So that's, I think, still number one. Um, just fingers crossed that I can finally pull a tag, but I know there's a lot of people in the same boat as me that are wishing for the same thing, but, um, cool. We'll I know, what happens. Uh, yeah. I know Jenny's looking for a hunting partner this year. She, she pulled the draw, uh, for, no. for one of the inlet hunts let down here. So, um, no, we're going to tr- try and make something happen here in, uh, in October or November. It's a boat access hunt. So if you're, if you want to get out and experience that, uh, definitely, uh, could be a lot of fun. I do. Yeah. Give me a, tell Jenny to give me a call. <laughs> yeah, right on. We'll do that. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you sign off here and, uh, and then maybe we'll disconnect for a minute after the, after I stop the, uh, the, the chat. So anyways, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yep. Thanks so much for having me on Dylan. I, uh, really appreciate the opportunity and you've been having some celebrities on the podcast recently. So I'm glad I could still, still make the cut here. Oh, dude, you're like, in my books, <laughs> like talking to guys like you and Conrad that have been like, yeah, it just, it's, it's, I think I'm so lucky to have you on here. So yeah. Well, no, we, good. we appreciate the opportunity for sure. Yeah, totally. man. it's been tons of fun. I'm looking forward to hanging out with the rest of your colleagues too. It should be a fun series. So, all right, well, let's uh, chat hunting when we sign off here. So, okay, we're signing off and we're going to talk hunting. See everybody. Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, we do 
in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and wild. Well.